This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Bookmark. I'm Uma Pagan Ampage Pagan, and joining me today is author Andrew Barber. His book, simply titled Doris van der Straten, tells the story, this rather dramatic story of an Australian citizen, the wife of a Malayan Eurasian, World War II prisoner of war, and the eventual mistress of the Japanese Army's Western garrison commander in Kuala Lumpur during the occupation of Malaya. When I heard about this book, I, I googled it. And the first thing I came across was this old Straits Times article with the headline, Jap threw woman out of window, Chinese witness states. Well, you're right. I mean, it's gone back a long time. That would have been a 1946 um, reference, I think, after the war when there was a, a trial was a, going on. The, that's right. Uh, 2nd of July, 1946. 2nd of July, that's right. So, um, well, hello. My name is Andrew Barber. I've been living in Malaysia for... Almost 20 years, I originally came out with the British High Commission as a diplomat. And during my time here in Malaysia, I've taken an interest in the politics and the history of Malaysia. And I've written a series of books along the way. The current book is the most latest, um, Doris van der Straten. Yes, if you Google or you go on to uh, the online version of The Straits Times and you put in uh, van der Straten, you'll get a few references. And one of them will be um, the time of the trial of Doris van der Straten's interrogator, a Kempetite Japanese Gestapo officer. And his was one of the very first trials in Kuala Lumpur after the war had ended when the British came back and they had a whole series of these war crime trials around Asia. And uh, Shuzi, Lieutenant Shuzi Murakami, who was the interrogator, was one of the very first to be tried here in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, the case of Doris van der Straten, Doris Heath, it's a maiden name, um, at the time was uh, something of a, was a big news item. Um, but of course, as years have gone by and history's gone by, it's pretty much been forgotten, um, though it's an extraordinary story. It is indeed. And it was such a descriptive article as well. Mrs. van der Straten then shouted, Tyrant, you can't do this to me, and slapped Murakami's face. Murakami was furious and grabbed her by the dress and threw her out the window. The accused made the witness sign a statement to the effect that Mrs. van der Straten had committed suicide. I mean, there was so much drama within those two paragraphs alone. And I think that in itself would compel anyone to want to pick up your book because you essentially tell her story. Yeah, I tell her the narrative of um, Doris van der Straten's tragic story um, and preceding this final tragic end where she plunges to her death from the Kempatai headquarters in Kuala Lumpur. She had, prior to that, she'd survived a massacre up in southern Thailand at That's the very right. outset of the war. She'd then spent Five the months. Kampong To massacre. Kampong To massacre. She thought her husband had been killed in that massacre. In fact, he hadn't. But um, she survived that massacre and she ended up in the jungle of Malaya um, with a tin miner. And they survived for five months, extraordinarily, uh, living with the Orang Asli and then living with some squatters um, in the jungle fringes of Perak. And then finally, after five months, by which point the British had long since surrendered, they gave themselves up to the, uh, the Japanese military. Um, she was then put in as the only woman by this stage in the war. All the other females had been put in internment camps in Singapore. She ended up as the only woman in a POW camp in Taiping prison, surrounded by military. And she was there for a number of months before they were all sent down to either Pudu prison or to Changi. And she was sort of 
at that point isolated. She'd come under the attention of the, the commander there, a fellow called Colonel Coda, who had obviously sort of looked at her in a rather predatory sort of way, I suspect, seen her. And he's put her into a, a hospital for a while to, to help her recover from some of the problems she'd had in her jungle ordeal. And by the time she re-emerged, all the other POWs had gone and she was on her own. And he then uh, arranged to take her down to Kuala Lumpur, where she became his mistress for a year, pretending to be an Italian, and then finally fell foul of the, the Kempatai in that last sort of dramatic moments of her life. So an extraordinary st- narrative, an extraordinary story of basically a an Australian housewife who happened to be initially at the wrong place at the wrong time and it all sort of unraveled thereafter. And that's what makes it so remarkable. Mm. She seems to have fallen into everything. Nothing was by design. Well, you, 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 yeah, exactly. It's extraordinary, one thing after the other. But a great survivor in many ways, except right to the end. Um, yes, yeah, an extraordinary saga of mishaps, everything that could have gone wrong. And, um, but a very colourful narrative, you know, the story itself, I think. And it's, you know, it's fully researched. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of multiple sources of evidence to, to sort of chart her story during the war. Tell me about the van der Stratens. Who were the van der Stratens? Well, the van der Stratens were a Salonese burger Dutch origin family. And like many of Salonese in the late 19th century, professionals, they were, many of them were lawyers, legal background. Um, the grandfather, van der Straten, who came to Kuala Lumpur, he came in, I think, about the 1890s. And he was a senior figure in the Malayan Railway. He was the chief clerk. So he was in a Eurasian, um, a senior, and he basically brought his family with them and they had many children, I think 13. So very rapidly became a clan and they were quite a prominent, a very prominent Eurasian family within in the interwar years. Um, and one of their sons, Philip van der Straten, happened to be a, uh, a mining engineer and he went down to Adelaide, there's a school of mining there, met Doris Heath, as she then was, um, a divorcee, separated from her, well, divorced from her husband, separated from her two daughters. Um, anyway, they fell in love, I assume, um, certainly got married and came back to Malaysia, or Malaya, as it then was. Um, and Philip was ended up posted to a mine in southern Thailand, a tin mine, um, which is where the Japanese arrived. So the van der Stratens were a, a prominent Eurasian family, um, and again, I'm in a sort of parallel track to the Doris van der Straten story is their story, which, you know, I look at in the book in, uh, to a degree. And they and themselves had an extraordinary war and a brutal war. Um, many of them died trying to flee Singapore and some of the last boats, ships that were leaving Singapore as the Japanese were, were attacking the island. Um, I think they lost about seven or eight members of the family in, in various sinkings of civilian ships. Another one of their sons ended up, he was a member of the volunteers, ended up on the Thai-Burma railway as one of those POWs. Um, he survived the war, but uh, clearly went through hell and beyond. Um, so the family had a, in themselves or a large, busy, eclectic sort of family, but they themselves had a tragic war and they never really recovered as a family after that, after the return. I mean, Philip, Doris's husband, came back to Kuala Lumpur and numbers of... Uh, other members of the family came back. But as a clan, as a family, they never really covered their previous position. In your reading of her life, mm. did you, at any point, did she come across as 
a willing participant. And the reason I ask that is, did she embrace what she had to do at any point? Well, that, that's a great question. And, and, and the reason I ask that is yeah. because, you know, I've seen far too many movies. <laughs> you could play this either way. You could see her as a, an absolute victim, isolated, um, with really no hope, thought her husband had been killed, genuinely believed her husband had died in the Kampung Toe massacre. Um, she was lonely, isolated. Um, she had no other options. And so when the Japanese commander began to sort of show her attention and uh, give her medical treatment and so forth, she, um, she fell victim to his predatory instincts. That's one way of looking at it. Um, another way, which I think was more common, and the family were very conflicted after the war, um, was to be to see her as an opportunist. To um, this is a family who had suffered hell and beyond with the Japanese, and then suddenly discover that their daughter-in-law, the Australian daughter-in-law, is living around the corner, pretending to be an Italian, not very well, I don't think. I think it was pretty well known who she was. Um, living, and the French call it uh, collaboration horizontale. You know this idea that. Uh, you make your own way. So it's a very complicated, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this story. The narrative itself is fascinating with the actual story of what happened to her. Um, but I don't think there are any simple black and white answers. Um, in many ways, her behavior was reprehensible, you could think. Um, but in many ways, you can also see her as a victim. Um, and, and also a survivor, because she had to do that to live. She had to do that to live. And that's when you come to your original question, the very first Point about the 1946 newspaper article, which came to the core of the trial of her um, interrogator, Mori Kami. Um, was she pushed or did she jump? And to this day, we just honestly do not know. Um, but my sense is that she wouldn't have jumped, and which is what Murakami claimed. And I don't think she would have jumped either. After reading your account of her life, she had been through hell and back mm. and had, had and i think she had been through worse and it didn't push her to suicide yeah she was and, a, and sure people have different breaking points mm. but it seemed like she was a real fighter i think that's that would that's how i i would uh, characterize her that said she had at the, this point had 3 days in the kempatai headquarters that's true. in the lee rubber building in the middle of town now, I don't think she came in for the worst sort of torture that they, they meted out, but it was a terrible, dark place. And who's to know what happened? So I think there's this final ambiguity in what is a fairly ambiguous sort of moral tale. Um, was she explicitly murdered, i.e. was she literally pushed out of the third floor window to fall to her death? Or, and you could see this in many ways as a sort of secondary type um, murder, was she taken to such a point that she felt she had nothing else to do but to jump to her death, which in itself would, you'd have thought, lead to um, all sorts of you know, charges against the people that were responsible for her interrogation. So, Andrew, uh, I want you to do me a couple of things. Uh, could you paint me a picture of Japanese Malaya and pre-Japanese Malaya, or Kuala Lumpur? Japanese Kuala Lumpur and pre-Japanese Kuala Lumpur. Well, they were chalk and cheese, really, I have to say. Of course, pre-war, it's very much a British colonial... It was a city, but not a big city. If you look at the sort of... Uh, not doesn't compare with Kuala Lumpur today, and you look at the map and you see what a, 
actually a pretty small town it was, you probably about 300,000 people. Um, but for the British, it had a reputation as a party town. You know, during the early part of the war, there was war going on in Britain and in Europe. Um, you had the Blitz over London. You had terrible times. You had um, you had hardship. You had rationing. But in Malaya, because the Japanese didn't attack until December forty-one, and Britain went to war against Germany in September thirty-nine, you had this sort of period when yes, Britain was at war, but in Kuala Lumpur and Malaya. The Europeans in particular continued to live a pretty enjoyable life, you know. Um, there was races, there were parties, there wasn't rationing. So it was a fairly jolly city, I think, at least for the British, you know, that's for sure. Um, and I think for the, the main communities, Chinese, Malay, Indians and so forth, it had been part of the colonial construct and um, continued in pretty much in that way. I mean, there were obviously tensions and there was growth of um, you know, political tensions as the Japanese threat rose. But then, of course, it then changed enormously. And under the Japanese, it was a city under occupation, um, particularly for the Chinese community who were hammered, quite frankly. And there was a thing called the Suk Chin, which was this program of um, intimidation and uh, violence, um, often targeted against um, Chinese gang members, but also young men, activists, anybody that might have supported the Chinese cause in uh, Manchuria. And there was a lot of fundraising and so forth went on before the war. So the Japanese were intent on hammering the uh, most of the Chinese community, but anybody who was seen to be a collaborator with the, with the old uh, colonial British, and that would include the Eurasians. Um, so it was, you know, the, it was a violent city. There was, um, the Japanese would, if you didn't bow as you passed a Japanese soldier, you get a slap around the head. Um, it was a um, shortages and hardship became more and more prevalent as the war went on. So it became a, a fairly dark place, I think. And um, so there were huge differences between the two. But, you know, for Doris living um, in her nice big house, the mistress of the Japanese commander, probably had all the privileges, probably didn't suffer. But around her, there would have been huge anger and animosity. And I think that would have been reflected as people saw this this woman driving around and living the good life and they were really suffering and being hammered. So uh, that would have, I think, coloured a lot of views about Doris after the war when the trial came along. And I don't think it was huge sympathy for her, although now we can be with the distance of time, we can be more sort of forgiving, more accepting of what, her, what happened to her. Um, I think at the time she was seen as something of a, a scarlet woman who probably many people would have thought deserved what she got. Um, we would probably be a bit more generous now. What happened to the van der Straten family? Well, they pretty much um, dispersed after the war. The, the, the sort of patriarch um, tried to flee Singapore and didn't, and he came back to Kuala Lumpur during the war and actually lived. He wasn't put in an internment camp, as some Eurasians were. But he died in 1944. One can only assume a broken man because many of his family had died. He had this daughter-in-law around the corner, humiliating the family. So he died in 44. Many of other members of the family did die during the war of, um, uh, as a consequence of the Japanese um, military actions. Then others who had sc scattered, Philip van der Straten, Doris's husband, who she thought had been killed in the Kampong Tom massacre, in fact hadn't been, he'd been injured. He spent the war actually relatively well off in an internment camp in Bangkok. And he came back at the very end of the war, himself believing his wife had been killed in the Kampung Tom massacre, to find this extraordinary story. 
And he eventually, with his sister and his sister's daughter, and they had spent the war in a in an internment camp in Sumatra, living off they'd been rescued from the sea from a sinking boat uh, by a Malay fisherman, spent the war in an internment camp in Sumatra, living off rats and that sort of thing. So they eventually went back to Britain on independence on Medeka. And uh, Philip was to die there. And um, Doris's other sister-in-law um, would also eventually die of old age. But her daughter, who was a wonderful woman, Paget Nathan, she's now called, is one of um, my main sources into the family's rather sort of conflicted view. She still lives. She's of a certain age. She lives in Norfolk in Britain. Um, and she sat down with me on a couple of occasions and wrote me many emails about the family. I think it was a bit of a cathartic moment for her. Um, and as a young child, age four or five, her earliest memories of life are the sinking of the SS Koala, clinging to her mother and clinging to a life jacket in the waters off Banker um, and then eventually being rescued by the Japanese. And so she, to this day, remains um, an elderly woman but still very, uh, very with it. And she was able to tell me, A, about her own story, which I reflect a bit in the book, um, and her survival with her mother, um, but also the, the family's view or views on Auntie Doris. There is, there must be dozens of such stories of women being used in this way, fighting for survival by becoming mistresses, by doing anything they could, and not just to live, but I guess to just get by as well during the Japanese occupation. Mm. What brought you to Doris's story? Well, I think there were a lot of women that did end up um, as the mistresses of Japanese officers here, but for the most part, they would be Malayan women. Um, most, in fact, I think this is the only case I know of, not just in Malaya, but elsewhere in Southeast Asia, of a British or a, uh, an Australian woman actually becoming the concubine, if you want to call it that, the mistress of a Japanese commander. There were cases in the Dutch East Indies, and they were more coerced, I think. They were given little choice. This was a bit more complicated um, in that um, Doris wasn't dragged from some camp and given no choice. Um, I think she was isolated. I think she was put in a pretty invidious position. She was groomed, groomed for lack yeah, of a better the word. word. The groomed. I think that's absolutely right. She was, and the commander, she lived in a nice, big colonial bungalow in Ceylon Road in the centre of Kuala Lumpur with servants. And once you've survived months in the jungle, you think your husband's dead. You know, your options are pretty bleak. Um, he, it was calculating, but... Funnily enough, we don't actually know too much about the sort of the, the nature of the relationship between her her lover, Colonel Coda, who was the garrison commander, and Doris herself. We have no, there are no letters, there are no... So we have to make some assumptions, or at least we have to, in the book, at least sort of put up some ideas of what the relationship might have been. And it may, yes, it probably was almost certainly groomed. She was groomed. Um, I think he looked pretty predatory about the way, but we're making some suppositions there. We don't know what the relationship between them was, and um, I suspect it was rather complicated. And so there are very few black and white issues in this story, which I, for me was one of the more interesting aspects of it, um, exploring those sort of areas, but without being able to come to really hard-nosed conclusions often because of the lack of historic data.
Now, Barbara concludes her story by saying this, and I quote, Some might see her as a victim of circumstance, a lonely, terrified woman grasping at an offer of comfort and protection from a predatory, corrupt and manipulative figure of authority. Others instead see her as an immoral collaborator who had learned her opportunistic survival tactics from her hard-drinking and hard-living mother. Most, however, will view her as a sad woman, neither an angel nor a devil, whom fate dealt a particularly bad hand. You can find Barbara's book simply called Doris Vanderstraten at MPH Bookstores. It is a fascinating look into a tiny part of history we've long forgotten. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.